0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Empowered Living, The Resources of the Church, with a message titled, Christ's Gifts to His Church. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I remember almost every December 24th when I was a young boy. I could never sleep the night before Christmas. And most of you remember the poem entitled The Night Before Christmas. You know, it says, "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." Well, folks, I want you to understand that I was definitely stirring. I was wide awake. At times, my parents actually found me out in the kitchen two o'clock in the morning, wondering if it was time yet to open our presents. My parents thought I was crazy. See, I'm glad that my kids weren't that crazy, but I was so filled with excitement that sleep and the night were merely a lengthy nuisance to be endured before the action started. You might think that all I remember at Christmas were my presents and my greed to get them, but as I remember the fact, I remember a very valuable lesson from my presents. As an adult looking back at Christmas, I now remember how little money my parents had for many years. They were immigrants who had come to Canada with nothing, and they worked very hard for everything they had. And quite frankly, I think the least thing they could afford were presents for their kids. They never forgot us at Christmas. Those long December 24th nights now remind me of my parents' love, a love that would willingly sacrifice for their kids. Jesus' love is both like and unlike my parents. See, unlike my parents, Jesus is full of riches. We've been studying the book of Ephesians, and we've been seeing what Jesus gives his children. Ephesians 1, verse 3, we were reminded that we've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. If you're in Christ, you lack nothing. We have, through faith in him, been cleansed from all our sins. We were once dead in our sins, but now we're alive with Christ to God. We who are many, coming from a variety of languages and races and cultures, have been made into the new people of God. My parents could never give me those kind of gifts. They simply weren't rich enough for that. But like my parents, Jesus has sacrificed himself to bring us his riches. Everything we have came at the great expense of his death on the cross. I want us to look at three very important gifts to his church. And the first of those gifts are the individual grace gifts he's given each follower of Jesus. So we'll start in Ephesians 4 verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I want you to notice the first word in verse 7. It's the word but. What we read in verse 7 and following is meant to be a contrast from verses 1 to 6. We were one united by our common faith. Whatever differences we might have had are now erased by the words one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father. See, we don't have many faiths. There are not many gods. There is but one true God. We are one. But. And the word but could also be translated in spite of that. Or on the other hand, we're united. That's true. But on the other hand, we're all very unique. Just because we share one faith does not mean that we look the same and act the same and wear the same clothing and get the same haircut. You see, that would be oppressive. See, every once in a while, I'll meet people with religious systems that demand that everyone does exactly the same thing. They think that leads to unity. Their approach to unity means sharing external things. They must all wear the same clothing. But Christ has made us to be unique. We have each one been given grace, individual grace, grace in varying amounts, measured out uniquely to each one of us, just as Christ in his infinite wisdom has seen fit in each one of our individual lives. Paul is speaking here about spiritual gifts. The word for grace is the Greek word charis. The Greek word for spiritual gifts is the word charismata, which actually means a gift of God's grace. Let me put this practically. If you have as an act of your will surrendered your life into the hands of Jesus, you are called to be one with all other believers. You're called to be united in Christ's church. But he has given you unique supernatural abilities. And these abilities are called spiritual gifts, grace gifts. It's a special ability that allows you to do the work of Jesus Christ. If we all use our spiritual gifts as varied and as different as they may be, we together jointly or collectively are just as if Jesus was here on earth. You have a unique calling on your life. You, you have a mission. You have a role to play in Christ's church that only you can play. But what is that role? See, once you discover your spiritual gifts, you'll discover the unique role that the Holy Spirit wants you to play. Now write this down. If you don't know your spiritual gifts, you need to start a Bible study. Here are the passages you need to study. 1 Corinthians 12-14, Romans 12-6-8, and 1 Peter 4-11. But let's keep reading. Ephesians 4-8-10. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. See, not only do we each have a unique gift, Paul wants us to know that this gift came from a spectacular origin. And Paul is borrowing language from Psalm 68, verse 18, where God comes down and wins a great battle over his enemies and brings home and divides the spoil of his victory with his people. In the same way, says Paul, Jesus has come down to earth and he's won a great battle on the cross and he's ascended up into heaven and divided up the spoils of the victory with us, his people. These are the spiritual gifts we've received. And behind all of this, we're to understand that our spiritual gifts are a costly, precious, valuable commodity. They're not inexpensive trinkets. That's what makes this thing so curious. I regularly meet Christians who tell me that you know they're not sure of what their spiritual gifts are. I mean, imagine that. So let me give you an illustration. This illustration might well be true, although I, I can't verify it. It's a story of a young man who received a Bible from his dad on Christmas. He was rebellious, and he wasn't interested in the faith, and he Was completely disappointed in the Bible. He was hoping for something more. He wanted a car. The gift only deepened his resentment toward his dad. Angry words were spoken that Christmas, and in time, he never spoke with his dad again. And years later, as his dad had now passed away and he had come home for the funeral, the man found the Bible that dad had tried to give him years earlier. He picked it up for the first time. It was still unused. In many ways, the Bible sparked some of the feelings of resentment he had from earlier. And then he opened it for the first time. A card fell out of the cover, and as he bent over to pick it, he was astonished. The card contained the address of an automobile dealer telling him that a brand new car was awaiting him in the showroom. And if you're a Christian and don't know your spiritual gifts, that's really you. Christ has given you a very expensive gift. It's going to change your life. It'll set you free in some manner unique to you. And in just the way Christ has called you, you will do the work of Jesus. So for the first gift that we've received are the individual grace gifts. Now we come to the second gift. He's given his people leadership that will equip them in ministry. So let's read Ephesians 4:11 to 13. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's one of the most revolutionary passages in the entire New Testament. It is stunning, it's breathtaking, it's liberating, it's gonna transform our view of the church. Now, those are big claims, but bear with me. Somewhere along the way, the Church of Jesus Christ made mistakes about leadership. Really, the error falls in two opposing or two opposite camps. One error is the error of authority given in the wrong areas. The other is no authority at all. Let me illustrate that. Many of you are aware of the church in the Middle Ages and its terrible abuse of power. See, in the Middle Ages, church leaders did not just lead the church. They held political power and often violently persecuted anyone who dared to oppose them. Theirs was an oppressive leadership and they shared the leadership only with political authorities and elites like them. See, on the other side, there are churches that leave all authority to a congregational vote. And please don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to congregational votes, but sometimes even in matters of doctrine, in which the congregation takes authority from the scripture and invests it into the hands of a free vote so that we are free to believe whatever we want. Is there another way? Well, yes, yes, there is.
0: So grateful to all those who have so generously participated in our fiscal year-end campaign. As you know, our goal by June 30th is still to raise $325,000 to sustain and develop Bible teaching and engagement programming across Canada and beyond. To do this, we utilize every effective medium at our disposal to make Bible teaching you can trust available online, on air, podcast, audio mail, and mobile apps offering audio, video, and print resources. As you may have heard, it's Dr. Newfeld's dream and the ministry at large to make the gospel known so that every Canadian would hear and need to make a choice as what to do with Jesus. So by June 30th, could we ask that you consider making a gift to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: The text mentions four distinct leaders. We've already seen apostles and prophets back in chapter 2. They laid the foundation for the church for all times. They were chosen specifically by Jesus. Now, Paul adds the term evangelists, and Ken Hughes calls evangelists the obstetricians of the church. They assist in bringing new believers to birth. And these three roles, the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, they have a global ministry. The last of the leadership offices mentioned here, however, is pastor and teacher. And you'll notice that I'm combining the last two words into a single title. And It's because the Greek structure suggests it. It points out that the role of the pastor is to make teaching and leading a priority. In fact, all of these leaders give teaching the major focus. The New Testament gives us a number of pictures of leaders, and it defines their activities. But Ephesians 4 gives us, I think, the central snapshot of what Christian leaders are supposed to do. A leader is to teach God's people the word. Listen to what Paul told Timothy. He's a new leader. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You know, many people are unaware that this is the primary role of a pastor. Pastors are called to be pastor teachers. Pastors aren't primarily chaplains or facilitators or professional babysitters or counselors or hired hands to do whatever the congregation calls them to do. The early church faced this very dilemma. See, at a time when there was a great dispute in the church over the proper distribution of food to widows, the church went to the apostles. Fix our problem, they said. Pastor, take care of the food distribution. And they wanted the apostles to look after it. But the apostles said, They wouldn't neglect the ministry of the Word and prayer to wait on tables. They knew that they were called upon by God to pray and to teach. And to what end? The purpose of spiritual leaders is to equip every Christian for spiritual leadership. And that means that the work of the Lord is done by all of God's people. That's why Christ has given spiritual gifts to his people. The unbiblical model says that the pastor is the minister— and the people show up and consume whatever the pastor hands out. But the biblical model says that God has appointed preachers to teach the apostolic doctrine that's found in the Scripture, and from that, all the congregation uses their spiritual gifts in ministry. Verse 13a says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. See, unity happens not as we all try to be preachers or as we all try to wait on tables, but it happens. As we understand the unique roles the Holy Spirit assigns to us and as we function according to God's individual ordained roles. And then what happens? Well, verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That is, as we are taught well, we become mature in our faith. And then we use our gifts in accordance with the faith that we're rooted in. And that's the heart of the matter. All of these gifts, that is, spiritual gifts, and the gifts of leaders are really intended to lead us to the last and ultimate gift, and that's the gift of spiritual maturity. All of us are called by God to become spiritually mature. In fact, spiritual maturity is another one of those wonderful gifts that Christ has for us. But how can we tell if someone's really spiritually mature? See, some of us have very funny ideas about that. Some believe that if they come from a long line of Christians, then they're probably spiritually mature. And some believe that if they've been a Christian for many years, well, they've got to be spiritually mature. And others believe that if you can teach well and are involved in many church projects, you're spiritually mature. But all those definitions are wrong. What follows now is one of the best definitions that I know of that describes spiritual maturity. It's Ephesians 4:14 4, to 16. We've looked at two gifts, the gift of individual grace gifts, and the gift of equipping leadership. But these two combined lead us to the reason for the other two gifts. So that there is a third gift, the gift of spiritual maturity. And from that passage, let's look at four marks that indicate whether or not we've become spiritually mature. Number one, maturity means accepting what is true and rejecting what is false. Paul presents us with a striking series of images. First of all, the image of an infant, helpless and uncertain and easily manipulated. Secondly, with a boat swirling around in the water, being blown by mighty winds, unable to get its bearing or reaching its destination. Those winds represent the variety of teaching that's going on out there. And thirdly, there's the image of gambling. The word cunning is a word from which comes the idea of a cube or a dice. This one's loaded. You always lose. The end of spiritual immaturity is always devastating. And you've seen immature people. You know, they hear one thing on a TV preacher, and then they're going in one direction, and next they attend a seminar, or they read a book, and their friend says something, and next someone says, then the newspaper says, and then a, a new guru says. Spiritual maturity means accepting what is true, rejecting what is false. It means you understand the Word of God. You're not swayed by human opinions. I once received a phone call from a man who told me he was a Christian and that his daughter had become involved in a New Age cult. Can you help us, he asked. I said, I didn't know, but I asked that he tell me about himself and his daughter. He told me that his daughter had become involved in some New Age things, and that was fine with him, he said, but what bothered him now was how deeply she had become involved. In other words, his philosophy was moderation in all things. You know, a a little false teaching can't be all that bad. How easily we're tricked, how easily the dice is loaded against us. We say it again. You can't be spiritually mature until you cling to what is true and reject what is false. Thousands of Christians have not learned to so immerse themselves in the Scripture so as to be able to discern the spirit of error from the spirit of truth. That's why God gives pastors and teachers who are committed to faithfully declaring you know, this book and not their opinions. Now, that's one of the marks of spiritual maturity. Let's look at the second one. Remember the beginning of verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. See, the second mark of Christian maturity means holding to truth in an atmosphere of love. Paul says we're to speak the truth in love. See, I wonder if you've ever run into a new Christian who's discovered some wonderful truths in the Bible, and now they're going to set everyone straight. They take on their pastor and elders. They take on their parents. They they take on their Bible study leader. You know, they take on their boss at work. I mean, they're going to straighten the whole world. So when it comes to using their spiritual gifts, they're convinced they're the only ones that got everything right. And what grows is a spirit of superiority. Listen, Christians are lovers. If we speak the truth, it's always done with gentleness, with respect, with kindness, and with concern. As you grow in Christ, the certainty around the things of God will always be shaped by graciousness and love. So let's now move on to the third mark of spiritual maturity. You remember the last part of verse 15. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Maturity means that all life finds its center in Christ. Philippians 1.21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Galatians 2, verse 20, he says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But how is that done? You know, Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, tells of people who are determined to remember Jesus every single minute of their lives. Whether or not we do that, let me ask you several questions. They help us determine whether or not we're mature. Number one, what do you think of in your spare time? If the answer is Christ, give yourself one point. Number two, How do you handle disappointments and problems in living? If you, like Paul say, I see Jesus in them, give yourself another point. Number three, have I shared my faith with someone who hasn't heard the gospel recently? If you have, give yourself a point. Number four, can you think of a recent change you've made in your life, let's say within the last month, and you simply and only made that change because you want to be more like Christ? If you can... Give yourself another point. Now, a final point about maturity. Verse 16 teaches us that maturity means we live out our lives in a godly confessing and in a believing Christian community. See, Christian maturity is never lived apart from the body of Christ. God means for us to be a part of a local church. Maturity means learning to live in community. Our maturity in Christ can only be accomplished if the body is healthy. Jesus has made great sacrifices to give us these wonderful gifts that I've mentioned. All he wants from us is not to repay them, but to accept the gifts that come from his hand and to turn to him and say, thank you, Lord, that you've loved me that well.
0: Thanks so much, John. Here's a fundamental question for you. Why is it The discussion of spiritual gifts causes so much anxiety amongst Christians.
1: Well, sometimes we're concerned about, you know, gifts like tongues and prophecy and that kind of thing. Uh, But many times it just creates anxiety because sometimes for people to say, these are the gifts the Spirit has given me. I mean, they, they kind of feel like it's boasting rather than giving all glory to God. So we are required, you know, I think by scripture, to become aware of what the Holy Spirit has given us and then to celebrate it and then to use those gifts for the glory of God. So, you know, all of that stuff needs to happen.
0: Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Empowered Living right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Deuteronomy 1119 reminds us that we're to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to the words of Scripture, to ensure the Bible is being taught to our children and being talked about wherever we are and at every time of day. The 1119 Fellowship, our monthly partner program, has become an essential contributor to making all the ministries and resources of Back to the Bible Canada possible. Now over 700 strong, the 1119 Fellowship represents donors from across the country committed to the mission and ministries of Back to the Bible Canada laugh again and in doubt. One 1119 member wrote us to say, I know that I can trust what is taught by Dr. Newfeld. This is why we became monthly supporters. To become a part of our monthly partner program, the 1119 Fellowship, or to learn more about the benefits of joining, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. Thank you for supporting Bible teaching you can trust.